J.D. Nuga. Let's start with the no card mantra. Om Namo Arihantanam Om Namo Sittanam Om Namo Ayariyanam Om Namo Ujjayanam Namo Gurve Sabasahunam Eso Panchanamo Karo Salva Pava Panasano Madalalancha Salvesim Paramam Havai Mangalam Paramam Havai Mangalam There are a number of ways that Jainism can help when someone close to us dies. First, we can remember that though their body is dead, their soul is not. In fact, their soul has almost immediately been reincarnated into the next life. In the same way it's hard for us to believe that we're souls, it's hard to believe that other people and living beings have souls just like ours. It's hard to believe that the soul of a little baby is the same age as your own soul, but it's true. It's hard to believe that the soul of a tiny ant is the same size as your own soul, but that's true too. Come on in. This is one of the very first benefits of believing that you're a soul, is that one of the corollaries is you believe other souls exist as well. And that lessens the pain when someone close to you, when their body dies. So that's the first way that Jainism can help with bereavement. The second way is that we know that two of our four enemies are anger and ego. Can anybody tell me the four enemies? Anger, ego, greed, and deceit. That's right. Anger, ego, deceit, and greed. Let's use them in that order because I didn't know it at first because that's the way we get rid of them. It goes from easiest to hardest. So when someone close to us dies, it is common to feel anger. We may feel anger at them, that is the person who died. We may feel anger at ourselves, depending on the circumstances. And a lot of times we feel anger at the world in general, that it is unjust. However, even in this case, Jainism gives us the tools to fight our anger. Does anybody remember what weapon we have in our fight against anger? Mindfulness. Okay. Any other weapons? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. That's right. Forgiveness is a very important, a very important part of both our religion and daily life. Here's what the book says about forgiveness. It is an inherent quality of the soul. Forgiveness is the antithesis of anger which contaminates the soul. To forgive is a most difficult thing to do, therefore it is considered the quality of brave people. It is easy to resort to anger. Anger demolishes the foundation of love, rational thinking, and intelligence. One's greatness is measured by his or her practice of forgiveness. Okay, so we talked about how Jainism gives us the tool to fight against anger when we are going through bereavement. And what about ego? The human brain has a remarkable ability <laughs> to ignore unpleasantness. And one of the ways that manifests itself is that we have a remarkable inability to admit that we and the people that we love are going to die. 
the possibility of death looms over everyone at every time. No matter how healthy you are, no matter how rich you are, no matter how innocent you are, or no matter how many people love you. Everyone knows that, but it's something that everyone ignores. In fact, we even have a phrase, right? The only inevitable thing in this world are death and taxes. <laughs> we say that, we hear everybody say that, but they don't mean it and we don't believe it. Even though your brain is one of the things trying to hide things from you, that's not healthy because you're not a brain. The brain is part of your body and you're a soul. And one of your enemies is the ego produced by your brain, telling you that death can't happen. That death is something that happens to other people in faraway places and not something that happens to me or the people around me. So we talked about how forgiveness is our weapon against anger. Does anyone remember what our weapon against ego is? Non-attachment? Close. <clears throat> Our weapon against ego is humility. Uh, so here's what the book has to say about humility. Humility is external and internal respect towards all living beings. Humility is inherent virtue of the soul, like knowledge, faith, commitment, forgiveness, and so on. Humility is the king of all spiritual characteristics. Humility denotes humbleness, modesty, decency, politeness, courtesy, kindness, reverence, admiration, honor, and respect. Without humility, the right knowledge, the right faith, and the right conduct cannot be attained. Hence, one cannot improve oneself and cannot achieve liberation. Okay, so we talked about, that was our second one. Right? We have weapons against the anger and the ego that we feel when people die. So first we remember their souls. Okay, that helps us get through the grieving process. Second, we have weapons to fight against the anger and the humility and the ego that we feel. Okay, third. What is our third way that we can get through bereavement when someone close to us dies? That is, Jainism teaches us about non-attachment. It is one of the five minor vows. Can anybody tell me the five minor vows? Ahimsa, uh, celibacy, uh, aparigraha. Yes. I'm missing the order. Maybe that's why. It's that's fine. Thanks for, uh, thanks for everybody just joining Jess. We're talking about how Jainism can help us through bereavement. We're on our third reason. Our first reason was we remember they're a soul, not a body. And second, Jainism teaches us how to fight anger and ego that we feel when someone close to us dies. We're on the third reason, which is non-attachment, which is one of the five vows. And we're talking about the five minor vows, they are non-violence, non-lying, non-stealing, non-attachment, and certain forms of celibacy. So we're on the fourth one, non-attachment. This is an unpleasant truth that we will not shy away from in this class. That is, we are attached to the people that we love, 
and that is wrong. In fact, one of our most famous and our most enduring stories is the story of Gautam Swami. And this is the story we should try to understand during bereavement. We don't have time for the whole story because it's very long. The short version is that Indrabhuti was a wealthy and handsome man. He sees celestial beings bowing toward Mahavir and his ego gets bruised because they were not bowing towards his teacher named Soma. He gets mad at Mahavir because Mahavir speaks the common tongue and not the language of the affluent people, which he spoke. Mahavir reads his mind and answers his questions about reality during the debate. So at the age of 50, Indrabhuti becomes the first disciple of Mahavir. And from then on, he's known as Gautam Swami. The part that we're going to skip over is all the hijinks these two get into being a Tirthankar and his first disciple. Keep in mind that Gautam Swami's body dies at 92. So we're skipping about 30 years of hijinks. Okay, imagine the love you would have for someone if they opened your eyes to the truth of reality, if they saved your soul, and you got to spend 30 years with that person after that. To say that these two were brothers or best friend is selling it way too short to the point of being insulting. They probably had a love that I've never known. So we pick up the story on the day when Mahavir was going to attain Nirvana. Mahavir sent Gautam Swami out to preach to a man named Dev Sharma. On his way back, Gautam Swami learned that Mahavir had attained Nirvana and reached Moksha. Gautam Swami went into a state of shock and sorrow. It's not like this was a surprise. Mahavir knew when his body was going to die. He must have known it was going to die. And he must have sent his best friend and his brother away from him on that day. Gautam Swami laments, Lord Mahavir knew this was going to happen. Why did he send me away? Gautam Swami could not stop his tears and started weeping. Within a few minutes, he came back to his senses and began thinking, maybe it was destined to happen this way. No one can live forever and no relationship is permanent. Why was I so attached to Mahavir? He contemplated that he himself was wrong and gave up his attachment for Mahavir. During this deep thinking, he burned his Gati karmas and attained Kevaljan at the age of 80. He spends 12 more years as a Kevali and dies at 92. So, if Gautam Swami learned this lesson about someone that he loved, with the love that I probably don't know, and none of us probably know, then certainly this has a lesson for us with regards to bereavement. How does this story help us with bereavement? Well, it's two things. One, it, it makes me think that even Gautam Swami, who we know was far in advance in his journey towards um, I mean, compared to uh, he, one, he had that attachment. And I mean, learning to the stories over and over, we, we know that he did not get Kevardhanan because, or he uh, he did not liberate because of his attachment to Maharaj Swami, and Maharaj Swami knew it. 
So, so that's one that can happen even to the uh, somebody as as uh, learned as as him. And two is by by recognizing that the attachment he had was was not uh, supposed to be there. And as soon as he recognizes it, he gets killed now. So those are the two things that you know. It's a uh, in a way, Mahavir Swami is uh, going to moksha actually helped Gautam Swami to get the Kevatna. So it's, you know, he may not saw it at first like that, and but that's that's how I, I see it. Right. <clears throat> Thanks for everybody just joining us. We're talking about how Jainism can help us with bereavement. Um, and our first reason was that we remember their souls and not bodies, just like we remember we are souls. And if we believe we're a soul, then it helps believe that other people are souls. Uh, second, we learned how Jainism can help us fight two of our enemies, anger and ego, that we feel when someone close to us dies. And third, we remember the story of Gautam Swami, which is the story of bereavement. And I want to make an important point here, okay? We're just talking about the Jainism part here, right? We're not talking about other ways that um, people will tell you that we should get through bereavement. And there are very good ways, you know, things like, uh, seeing a professional, being in groups, um, talking about death with others, accepting the normal feelings that come with loss, making sure you take care of your own health and you eat well and you celebrate the life of the deceased person. We're just talking about the Jainism part, how Jainism can help us during bereavement. So questions or comments about anything we talked about. We talked about three reasons, three things we should think about, three things we should consider uh, when someone close to us dies. Has, has anyone seen any ritual? I'm trying to think, like, uh, I've seen one of my close friends uh, uh, passing at about six, at the age of 16 to elders that I, I was close to. But I, I've not seen a ritual or the things in the, in the community, at least that I've been involved with, to, to, to pass this message. Uh, you know, it's like, let's say even elders, you know, somebody else passes at the younger age, they're like, oh, you know, it's so sad that somebody passed at this young age, should not have happened, and this and that. Uh, the message like this, that, okay, nothing is, uh, once we shouldn't be attached, it's the, it's the soul, soul is going to rebirth right away. It's, I, I don't know, it's just a sort of a cultural or society thing that I, I see is like, you have to, you have to do the bereavement. You have to. I, I just don't. I when I hear this, it should be. I for lack of a better word, I, it should be less intense uh, than it ends up happening. At least in my my my. You don't see it because it is uncomfortable. Because I don't want to minimize somebody else's grief by telling them that, oh, it's okay. Their soul is gone to the next life. So you should feel, I don't want to confront somebody like that, right? I don't want, even though it's the truth, I don't want to come across as disrespectful or something like that because that person is in a lot of pain. That's why you don't see it. We can do that, but like, for example, if it's Marat Saibs or uh, others who are, uh, you know, it's almost like if something happens, if you have a guru around you, basically that, that person leads into, reminds into things like this. Right. And that's, that's the good part about it, right? That's why we lean on 
Amar Sabs and things like that. Yeah. I think uh, just to answer your previous question, I also feel there's a lot of subjectivity uh, and then it doesn't matter whether it's Jain family, non-Jain family or others. Uh, uh, these moments and things are forgotten because of that subjectivity, like, you know, depending on the age of the person who left us, uh, what happened, how it happened, why it mm -hmm. happened, and things like that. Um, my other separate comment is the fact that, uh, I guess we talk about someone close to us uh, leaving us uh, and, and the bereavement aspect of it. Uh, just personal lesson learned, I mean, all of us are still away from our family, in terms of father, mother, whatever, um, the communication aspect, right? I mean, uh, the, we have a lot of tools that have made it easier to keep in touch, to stay in touch. Um, and taking that time out of life to go visit them, like, uh, it was very tough for me. I had seen my mom for a year and a half, of course, uh, talked to her uh, on the phone and FaceTime and whatnot. But that void is always left in, right? I mean, you feel that regret, so do keep that in mind. I mean, as parents age and as we age as well, uh, we feel that when we see the circle of life with our kids and our parents. So we, we're on the fourth reason. Uh, we generally fear things we don't understand. So understanding about death will help us through this process because we will be less scared. Um, and the first thing to understand about death is Ayusha karma or lifespan determining karma. So Ayushit Karma determines the lifespan um, and you that you get that Ayusha Karma for your next life in your previous life. And you get it at two-thirds through your previous life. You get your Ayusha Karma for your next life. It's not guaranteed. If you don't happen to get it then, then you have one-third of your life remaining, right? Then when you have two-thirds, uh, when you have spent two-thirds of that one-third, you have a chance to get it then, okay? And then if you don't get it then, it keeps on going like that, with that, um, with that one-sixth now, when you're two-thirds of the way through the one-sixth, you'll get it then. So that's how you get Ayusha Karma, okay? Uh, what else happens? So, okay, so Ayusha Karma can be shortened, but it can't be lengthened, okay? So you can die via, via an accident. You can, you do have the free will to commit suicide. You are shortening your Ayusha karma, uh, but it's never, you can never lengthen it. Okay, so it just goes one way. Okay, let's not confuse Ayusha karma with Nam karma. People often get that confused. Nam karma uh, tells you the type of family you're going to be born into and the type of characteristics you have. Ayusha Karma is the only talking about the length of the life that you have next. So what, how do you, um, so what factors cause differences in your Ayusha Karma at that two thirds mark? If you engage in violent activities, if you take the lives of others, then you will get hellish or tiriancha Ayusha Karma. That is in your next life, you will be born as a hellish being or as an animal, okay? If you get, uh, if you live an honest or righteous life, low of passions and you service others, then at the time you get Ayusha Karma, you will get either a human life in your next life or your uh, heavenly life in your next life. 
So congratulations to all of you in your previous life. In your previous life, you have led a righteous life, low of passion, and you rendered selfless service to others. So why not continue that? Because you've already done it. The fact that you're here is proof of that. And so, of course, uh, once you shed Ayusha karma, uh, your soul attains immortality, just like once you said shed other karma. So, that's the, what are we at, fourth reason? That's the fourth thing we can think about during bereavement. And if we understand Ayusha karma, then it won't be scary. And we won't feel that incredible loss when somebody close to us dies. The, the fifth thing we should talk about is these bhavnas. The first four bhavnas are really just all about death, okay? And all about um, how to cope with death. The first one is anitya bhavna or transitoriness. Uh, it's common to feel that grief will never pass and some people actually take it too far. They feel guilty uh, when their grief passes because they figure that that means I don't love that person anymore or something, but it's normal for grief to pass and for your life to continue. And Jainism teaches that all teaches us that all feelings are transitory, including bereavement. And feelings are a product of the body, and you are not a body, you are a soul. So, uh, this is one of the things where the book is very good. Uh, you guys know that I have certain criticisms of the book, but these descriptions, somebody went really, described these bhavnas really nicely. All material things of the universe are transitory in nature. It is an ever-changing world. Nothing is stationary and permanent in this world. What gives us pain is not the changing modes, but our insistence on seeing that the things of our liking remain permanent. An unthinking person never, never reconciles oneself to the fact that change, to the fact of change, and this is the root of human misery, because no one who belongs to this universe can free himself from the laws of nature which govern the universe. We experience every moment that all objects of pleasure, wealth, power, and everything around us undergo changes. The moment we are born, we begin to die. Change is the rule. The only exception is our soul, our true self. However, we tend to forget that the soul is permanent and cling to things that are transitory. And in that process, we become unhappy and blame others. Obviously, the pangs of our pain would be greatly relieved if we constantly, constantly remember that change is the rule and clinging to changing modes is pure <coughs> ignorance. We should not use this reflection to be inactive and idle. Only if we remain engaged in doing well for others according to our ability can it be said that this reflection of impermanence has rightly permeated our lives. Having known the impermanent as impermanent, one is desirous of attaining the permanent, that is the pure nature of the soul, and that will lead you on the path of righteousness. So remember these bhavnas are reflections. There are 14 of them. And these first four are all about death. And this first one is anitya bhavna, where you contemplate the transitoriness of the world. So you can come to this from many ways, right? Everything we talked about dovetails into each other. But the root of it is, you understand you're a soul, you understand you've died many times, and the person who is close to you has died many times. This is not something new. This is something, this is something endless. This is something that they've been through before, that you've been through before. And you understand that the whole world has changed. 
and that will open your eyes. When you leave this room, you'll say that that's alive, that's not alive, I don't care about that, that car's not alive, that tree is alive, I care about that, that rock is alive, I care about that, the wind is alive, I care about that. You will see the world differently if you start believing this. So the next bhavna is asharad bhavna, or helplessness. No one is saved from the powerful and inescapable claws of death, nor can anyone save others from them. We alone have to suffer the pains of diseases, and hence our loved ones alone have to suffer the pains of diseases. This reflection is not to be used to shun compassion or friendliness or benevolent acts and thus become selfish or self-centered. Though it is a fact we cannot cure others of their diseases or protect them from formidable calamities because, of course, it's their karma that they bear the results of. Yet it is also a fact we can show compassion toward them by trying to help them according to our capacity to help them. So when we think about this bhavna, we think about how the only people we can help are, is ourself. But we don't become self-centered because we do help others, but we cannot bear <coughs> the fruit of their karma for them. We can only treat their symptoms, as it were, not the causes of their disease and their death and their unhappiness. So questions or comments about that? We've been through the first two, and we're on the fifth way that Jainism can help when someone close to us dies. Okay, let's talk about the third bhavna, the samsar bhavna, the cycle of birth and death. In the cycle of birth and rebirth, mother of one life may become wife in another life, and similarly, wife can become mother or anyone else. How strange and futile is the samsar? We should not have any attachment to it. Why have any attachment to it when it changes all the time? This bhavna asks us to remember that yourself is wandering in this samsara from one life to another since time infinite. This endless wandering must have some purpose. Can there be an end to it? Surely it cannot be the scheme of nature that this atma should go on endlessly to experience pleasures and pains, hopes and despairs, life after life, without any purpose. If there is any purpose, we must find it. No one has gained anything by repeating this endless cycle of birth and rebirth, life and death, and all the difficulties, tensions, and turmoil of aimlessly moving through this samsara. What can I do to avoid it? Okay, so this is very powerful language that reminds you. You have done this, and the people close to you have done this almost infinitely throughout all of their lives. And once you see them as a soul, and once you see you yourself as a soul, you will see your lifetime stretching infinitely into the past. And this is one blip on the radar for this person's passing. And you might meet them again. And you might, and instead of being their father, instead of being their husband, you might be their daughter. You might be their wife. You might be their pet. So what is the point of grieving? What is the point of bereavement? If something that has been done hundreds of times before and will be done hundreds of times in the future, why are we so worried about it? 
Let's talk about the fourth one. Ekatva bhava, or solitariness. I am alone. I was born alone. I will die alone. I am sick alone. I have to suffer alone. I alone have to experience the consequences of karma, which I earned. Therefore, I should be cautious and stay away from attachment and aversion. Ekatva means aloneness, and anyatva means separateness. Each one of us has to suffer the fruits of our individual karma. Our cooperation in worldly affairs, love and affection for others should not be allowed to degenerate into an attachment because no amount of attachment for either our family or friends can save us from the pains of life. Consciousness that I am alone and I alone have to chart my course of life is not being selfish. Also that my family and friends and my belongings are not mine does not breed selfishness. But clinging to all these things does bring selfishness because such clinging is the result of gross attachment, which is the worst vice in human nature. So remember, in each one of these, we have this caveat, right? Don't take it too far to make it something bad. We learned previously that all strengths are weaknesses and all weaknesses are strengths. In fact, that was one of our open challenges, right? You give me a strength and I will tell you what the weakness is. You give me a weakness and I will tell you what the strength is. So if you take it too far, then you start becoming selfish. Okay? Just because you alone have to bear the consequences of your action doesn't mean that you can't comfort a loved one that's dying. But that person is dying because of the consequences of their actions. Okay? It does mean you shouldn't take on that additional burden. It, so it does mean you should show compassion. You should help people. You should help your family. Okay? But it doesn't mean that you then have karma binding to your soul because of the anger that you feel at their death, because of the ego that arises in you at their death. Okay? So there's always these caveats where you don't take it too far. They okay? don't make it a part of you. It's a pretty fine line between compassion and attachment then. Let's talk about it, okay? Can you show compassion without being attached? Or do you think that, well, if I was really not attached, I have this sort of indifference? I think you can. I think you can. I think you can show compassion to somebody without being attached to them. I think you can show empathy towards somebody. I think you can do good deeds. I think you can volunteer. I think you can help somebody through their pain. And that doesn't mean you're attached to them. Okay? That means you understand that they're a soul. And you understand that you're a soul. And you understand that whatever they're going through is the result of their actions. And you're helping them. Um, Maybe it may have been a result of their actions, but it may not have. But that doesn't mean that you think your souls are the same soul. That doesn't mean that you think that whatever consequences they have to go through are as a result of your actions. And that doesn't mean that you should be 
you should gain karma from your soul because of their actions and what happened to their soul. Right? So we have this idea of punya nubandu punya, punya nubandu pa, papa nubandu punya, and papa nubandu pa, right? That is, your reactions will lead to some other type of reactions in the future, right? So you can show compassion and have that be it and not gain pop from it because then you're angry at the world because somebody died and you lash out at people. And those are the results of your actions. And that's the difference between compassion and attachment. If you're attached, then you start getting stuff on your soul because of what other people do. But if you have compassion, you perform the service and nothing happens to your own soul. <clears throat> that's a very good question and other people may have a different opinion. Does anybody have a different opinion? On the same point, I think what you mentioned is absolutely true for outside the nucleus of your circle. Uh -huh. So, your family, your immediate friends, if you just put all of them apart, aside, then that is true statement. In fact, that statement is true, it's just very hard to do it for your nucleus family, nucleus friends and groups. So that's when you get carried away, right? So, right. you know, today you don't know Sorry to disturb you. Come on in. Uh, I just want uh, Dr. Shivani. Hi. Uh, Dr. Shivani's PhD. She's actually doing our Rice University program. Oh, great. So she wants to sit with you guys if you are okay with it. Yeah, come on in. My postdoc is on adult religious education. <laughs> Swadhyay. Oh, great. So it's good to see, uh, see how you conduct Swadhyay. Well, come on in. Have a seat. Talk about dance class. So she was yeah. interested. I want to listen to you guys. Thank you for uh, blessing Thank us with so your much. presence, then. That's very nice of you. Today we're talking about how Jainism can help us with bereavement when someone close to us dies. And we, we have five reasons that Is we went okay through. Is it okay if I record? Sure, I'm recording it too. So if you want to yeah, join I us online, then you can join us online too. We're at jainismforeveryone.com. All of our recordings go up there. I will join that also, but for my own sake, I'll keep the recording. Sure, no, no that's not a problem. So today we're talking about how Jainism can help us with bereavement or when someone close to us dies. And we went through five things so far. Mm -hmm. First, we said that, well, we can remember that though the body is dead, the soul is not dead. The soul has been reincarnated into their next life. And once we believe that we're souls, it's easier to believe that other people are souls too. Second, we talked about how Jainism can help with two of our Four enemies, which are anger, ego, deceit, and greed. And Jainism can help us with the anger and ego that we feel when someone close to us dies. Specifically, the weapon that we have against anger is forgiveness, and the weapon that we have against ego is humility. Third, we talked about... Uh, I, I kind of went in a different order here. Uh, third, we talked about how we fear things we don't <coughs> understand, and we talked about Ayusha Karma and how we get Ayusha Karma and what determines our Ayusha Karma and how that will help us once we understand how death works, that will help us not fear it. And especially that will help us when somebody else goes through that process, that will help us not react. Uh, fourth, we talked about the story of Gautam Swami, which is one of the most important stories we have to discuss bereavement. That is, bereavement was the only thing keeping Gautam Swami from being a Kevali. And once he understood that, <coughs> he achieved Kevanya. What were we on? Four. Fifth, Fifth, we talked about the first four bhavnas. There are 14 bhavnas. 
The first four bhavanas, Anitya bhavana, Asuran bhavana, Samsara bhavana, and Ekatva bhavana, uh, how those get us through, uh, which are all about death, uh, how those get us through bereavement. And then I just opened up the floor to questions or comments. Um, and the first question was, uh, the first question was, well, what is the difference between showing compassion and having attachment? Isn't it true that if you show compassion to someone, you're attached to someone? And that's what we've been saying is wrong all along. And we made the case that it was not true, that you can show compassion to somebody without being attached to them. And you can do good deeds without being attached to the outcome of those good deeds and without letting someone else's actions and consequences of their actions give you karma. So questions or comments about any of that? I think uh, just to expand on what Bhavan said earlier, that <clears throat> especially the the people of the close circle, the family and friends, let's just start with the kids, as we always do, it, it just, the compassion is there and attachment is there. And it just becomes so, uh, such a strong bond uh, in terms of that you just don't differentiate between you know, that you, you need to be compassionate, but not attached. Mm -hmm. In fact, especially we do things, a lot of, lot, aside genism, uh, that, that makes that uh, uh, attachment more so than compassionate sometimes. Uh, like saying things like, oh, I love you every time. I mean, that's just one of those things that gets you more and more attached mm -hmm. than just being compassionate and not expecting uh, other things uh, from those relationships. So I I feel it's, it's it's pretty tough with, especially with the, the close family. Certainly it's very tough. And as Bhavan mentioned, uh, it's uh, very hard. And I never said it would be easy. Uh, I'm, we're showing you the path, right? But nobody ever said walking the path was easy. And I definitely hear you. It's very, very hard. And that's why we're here together, to support each other and to take Jainism outside of these four walls and into your life. And I hope that with these things that we can lessen the pain of bereavement by understanding the reality, <coughs> okay? By understanding, it's hard, right? When your kids, your, your kids have a soul the same age as you. Your kids have a soul that's been through as many lifetimes as you have, and that's died a thousand times before. So their soul is well-versed in being born and dying. And that might make it easier to be compassionate without being attached to them. And that's an uncomfortable truth that we do not shy away from in this class. Okay? We have never shied away from uncomfortable truths. My job is to tell you what reality is, not to tell you whether that reality is good or bad or how to feel about it. And that's why we don't, it's hard for us to, it's hard for us to comfort others because we don't want to diminish their pain or feel like we're being disrespectful to them by telling them, oh, it's okay, you know, your daughter has gone to their next life, you know, and somehow that should make you feel better about it. Well, it should make you feel better, but we don't, we, that's not how we talk. So I can tell you here and I can tell everybody online and I can tell the internet, but maybe I can't tell somebody at a funeral what the reality is. Maybe it's up to them to learn about the reality and use it to help themselves.
how do you build on to this one so you don't wait till that thing happens, right? So on your daily actions, your daily interactions with your closed ones, um, one child is going through nervous breakdown, other one is having a party, other one is going through some sickness. All of that we know that is based on their karmas and actions and it's based on your actions that you are facing those things too. How do you build on this uh, on a daily basis? You build on it on a daily basis by looking through the illusion that your child is eight years old and a body and male or female. That's all an illusion. Sure. Your child is a soul. And the first way to understand your child is a soul is to believe you are a soul. Uh, one of the most important epiphanies I had in this class was when we raised our hands and very few of you believe you're a soul. Once you believe you're a soul, your life will change. And the way you see, that's the easiest way to do it. What we're talking about, what we've been talking about for 80 classes is the hard way to do it. The easiest way to do it is to believe you're a soul. Then you believe your child is a soul. Then every interaction you have with your child is colored by the truth instead of by delusion. Yeah, but how do you make them believe? That's the Oh, that's, that, I that's, thought, that's the harder How do you part. make them believe yes. their soul? Yes, that makes it easier for, for them, to make it easier for them. Right? You tell them every day right. that they're a soul. And you tell them the implications of that. And you conduct your life every day as if you're a soul because you believe it. I think before we convince them, we have to believe first. Right? <laughs> sure. And it's really easier. It's easier if you do. Watch the movie, sir. So. <laughs> and it, if you don't believe yet you're a soul, you fake it until you make it and you test Jainism. And you test it and you test it in the ways that we have been describing. And once you see that Jainism is the truth, you won't want to read any other book than the book, than our textbook. Once you, once you believe you're a soul and you come to that realization, it's like the first hit of a drug you've never experienced in your whole life. That first hit of truth. Okay? Then all you want to do is get more truth. And that's what the book is for. Other questions or comments? Okay, so we did talk about our open challenge, right? We have an open challenge. And this is a good test because this is one of the hardest tests. Our challenge is, tell me a scenario where anger is not directed at the self. Nobody has been able to tell me a scenario where your anger has not been directed at the self. Because the definition of anger is the feeling we get. Anger is caused by the mismatch between expectations and reality. So let's talk about the death of someone we love. You're angry at them, you're angry at yourself, you're angry at the world for being so unjust. Is that anger directed at yourself? Yes or no? Yes. Yes? Yeah. Okay. Why is that anger directed at the self? Yes. Well, you knew that nobody's there forever, so... Right. I guess you're having that... 
but sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say having that expectation that everybody will be there forever is is the wrong expectation, which is causing the anger. Right. That's your ego trying to hide the reality of the world from you. So, so this is probably the hardest case we've come against. And still, we know nobody has overcome this open challenge <coughs> to prove to me that there is a scenario where anger is not directed at the self. Okay, this is going to be the hardest case. So if you believe this case, you believe it forever. What would you do in your situation if you're driving and you were to hit somebody and you cause them to So, okay. is that... Uh, well, you definitely made a state of anger there, but... So the scenario is, you're driving a car, you cause an accident in which the other person dies, and you get angry at yourself. Well, there that's it, right? <laughs> you're angry at yourself. So all anger is directed at the self. We should not, right? You're saying. Certainly. Anger is one of our enemies, one of our four enemies. The word Jane comes from the word Gina, which means conqueror of our enemies. And our four enemies are anger, ego, deceit, and greed. But you made a mistake. You made a mistake, but why should you be angry? You can feel compassionate towards those people, those families. You can do what you can to make things right. You can take on additional burdens, but what is the anger doing for you? I, I like your example. You're, you're making it amplified, right? I mean, when you kill somebody, you, you just feel like the anger, but it's natural to be angry at yourself. And this is the example. And same way, I think, whether knowingly or unknowingly, I think we we make or we get angry at ourselves for so many mistakes. Let's just say we did it. Not that our kid is making a mistake and we're getting angry at them and then we think that it's them, not at us. But just forgiving ourselves. It took me a while to get it that forgiveness is not just for others, but it's for ourselves as well. And that helps. Like, if you made a mistake, you're compassionate about it, uh, that what happened, either somebody got injured or hurt. Uh, but partly, if you think about it, it was your karma involved, that person's karma involved in that situation. You're compassionate about it, but you're not angry at yourself. I, I don't know if I'd ever believe that it was their karma. I mean, that's... Not me not knowing who they are or whatnot. Uh, yeah, you just don't know that person. But it's if their their karma was not involved, they would not have been at that place. Okay, they wouldn't have adding to, and, what, uh, adding to what you just said, so it initially starts with guilt, and then there's a very thin line between the guilt and getting angry, right? So in this case where you've said the person dies, initially say if if that person had not died, for example, and he's <clears throat> is uh, seriously injured. In that case, you'll first get the guilt. And then uh, it will soon transition to angry. Again, it depends on how serious that person is, right? So I think there is somewhere a line where it switches from guilt to angry and then that's directed at you. In both the cases, guilt is also for you itself, right? So. 
And what's concerning to me is that you have somehow made the implication that if you don't get angry, then it's wrong. But that's not true. That doesn't mean you don't feel sorry for that person. That doesn't mean you don't regret what you did. That doesn't mean any of those things. Just because you don't get angry doesn't mean it was... That you, you seem to have made the implication that the anger is the right thing to do in that situation. The right feeling to have. But that's not true. <laughs> Other questions or comments? Okay, thank you very much for coming this week. I really appreciate that. Uh, if you want, I think we need some time to discuss the uh, food for the May 15th. So if anybody wants to hang around here, now we have a little bit of time to do that. Thank you so much for coming and thanks to our honored guests too. Thank you. Thanks to everybody uh, online as well. Yeah, but I, I have some questions for everyone. Okay, sure. Firstly, like, you know, uh, I just want to know some background of you as an, you know, teacher kind uh, and then uh, and the students like what is your background what is the motivation for doing this classes how long have you been doing it and what are the topics that you usually discuss and uh, like there are too many children but too many too less dads here <laughs> so why is this proportion so different and what are other ways to engage more dads so i have some of these questions okay sure well we'll take your last question first the uh, best way to engage people is to add value to their life and that's what I try to do here. We try to take Jainism outside of the classroom and apply it to their life. <coughs> as far as uh, how long it's been going on, it's been going on. This version of the class has been going on for how long now? Three, four, 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 five four, years five now. Years. Five and previously, this class was, that's just this version. Uh, previously, this class was headed up by uh, Mr. Janish Mehta. And that was going on for two to three years. And that's when adult class started. Um, and so, right. And so, uh, as far as who I am, that's not important. How about who you are? No, both is important for me. So, <laughs> you can start with yourself and then you can continue. Sure. So, I grew up here in Houston. I came through the Houston Patsala program. And uh, there was an opening when uh, Mr. When Janishanko um, stopped doing dad's class. So, I thought that I could put my own twist on it and help people take Jainism out of the classroom and into their life. And that's what we've been doing ever since. So uh, uh, only for uh, dads? Well, see, that's how this class started. I don't think that's how it's going to end up because there was a mom's class at that time. And I didn't want to, we didn't want to offend anybody by siphoning away people from the mom's class. Um, and so, there was an availability for dad's class, so that's how it started. I do imagine this class is just going to be adult class in the future, like adult class two application of Jainism, and then there'll maybe be the mom's class will turn into adult class one theory of Jainism yeah. or something like that. But that's how this started. I didn't want to disrespect anybody by taking students away from mom's class. So is that class still continuing, mom's yes, class? Yes, it is. So it is, uh, but the instructor is a little bit busy, so... Uh, has, she hasn't been able to take the class and that's translated into being a Swadhyaya class now. It's adult Swadhyaya class. So how does Swadhyaya class and this class differ? This also to me uh, is Swadhyaya class. Uh, I mean like Tamir said, uh, besides it being for dad, it's the application aspect 
of it uh, from what I have attended a couple of Swatiyai classes it's more uh, discussing purely on religion itself trying to understand and learn more religion uh, mm, so that's how I take it as religion versus the application of both religion to so Swadhyay classes understanding doctrines and uh, yeah. specifically like the few ones that I attended that were mostly discussed but here you understand application of those doctrines yeah so we each share about our examples or depending on the topics uh, and how we inculcate the Chinese in life. we talk about our kids a lot <laughs> and secondly, like uh, in, the, in in mom's class, what were the topics discussed? I, was that different, uh, the whole pattern from this class? I've never attended. I am not the right person to ask that question. So one of the examples I can tell is for a few classes, they talked about the Nau that was. But so they the, have a book like we do? No, so they uh, don't use the book. Yeah, so, so we have a so book that we go by. At least that's where he starts. Yeah, so Tim uses a book, the Jaina Adel. JES 402. 402, right? And I can put you, sorry, go So 402, that we use here, and mm -hmm. for the uh, women's class, there they were using uh, Navtatva, Karangran, <coughs> all those proper Jain scriptures. Uh, proper the, Jain scriptures. Yeah. And I can put you in touch with uh, the instructor there as well. Hey, Okay, interesting. And and the numbers, how many are you? I mean, not necessarily that you, you might be more, but not be not able to come today. So what is a general presence of numbers? This is a generally, uh, this is a the amount of people we generally have. Including the... Yeah, we have four online. Four. Yeah, plus what we have here. And do you have plans to increase numbers? Oh, well, that's always the hope. And so I hope by adding more value to everybody's life than... People recognize that and continue to attend. And how long do you have this class? One hour or more than that? It's an hour. And it's an hour, hour uh, every Sunday. Every Sunday. So it's like children have uh, their patshala. It's like an adult patshala. That's right. This but is actually a patshala program. This is part of the patshala curriculum. And all the people attending, are they born in the U.S. or they have migrated from India? All different. All different. Yeah, we have all different backgrounds and all different circumstances. Uh, so do you, do you find any difference, like if we just take this small group, uh, how many of you are born here or, or how many have been migrated? Because my, my research is on migration of Jain communities and how they cope up with their religious practices in a different uh, context. Oh, that's great. Which is compared, uh, and here I compare the people who are born in America and Jains, how they look at religion and how they practice <coughs> their tradition. So that's why I'm asking some of these questions if you don't take it personally. Oh, I don't take it personally. How many were born in India? How many Most were born in America? So, so all of you are born in India? That's right. But maybe raised here, most of you are just migrated uh, in your adult yeah you know that's an interesting distinction to make right because mm -hmm. i came in here uh, i came to america when i was one right but uh, i was born in india so, okay. so that, that, uh, maybe it, being born like, there isn't the right uh, it, distinction so raised in india and raised in the states right it's a better way to put that's probably better yeah so how yeah. many of you have yes okay we have one born here raised here 
so how, how how do you feel different from the rest of the people here that you know things that is very new to you or people who, are, who came from india they have a background they have a more culturally they are more rooted so do you feel the difference nick do we ostracize you for being born here <laughs> no Thank you everybody for coming this week. I really appreciate that. Of course, if you have more questions, I'm uh, we're very uh, open to that if you want to yeah. do one on one after sure. this. Thank but I think a couple people have to go. Yeah, okay. Thank you. Thank so you so much. much. You. Uh oh yeah, and we can talk about um, food stuff too. Thank you everybody for coming in online. I really appreciate uh, your time today. That's what we're going to talk. <laughs> All right, guys.